0: hello hey, good morning happy father's Day once again and uh Father's Day you know we always have a special message on mother's Day and Father 's Day that has to do with fathers and mothers but uh, attributed to God and so that's what we're going to do this morning we're going to take a look at this on um, mother's Day. We look at Mother God we look at the attributes of God that are considered typically feminine traits, right? So we're going to be looking at God's mercy and compassion, uh, his intimacy. We're going to be looking at um, the nurturing wisdom of God. All of these, the empathy, all of these traits that are typically more feminine in nature, we look at those and we show how scripture has embedded those into the Bible. So even though that we tend to look at God more as masculine and call him Father, I just said call him Father, right, Um, pronouns, there is a whole rich tradition of God also being feminine, God having those traits as well. And so on Father's Day, we're going to look at Father God and we're going to look at the masculine traits. That would be more like the authority and the power, the judgment, the performance of God, the creative aspects of God. And, you know, the point is, is that God, of course, is neither male nor female, neither masculine nor feminine, neither father nor mother, but a perfect balance of all the traits that we typically assign to one side or another, to masculine or feminine. These are biological traits, cultural traits, um, traditional roles that men and women have played throughout our, our history as a people that generally characterize male and female and masculine and feminine roles. But, of course, we also understand at the same time is that every one of us, male or female, has our own mix of traits. We're anywhere on the spectrum. That, that's, that's up to us. That's part of the nature and nurture um, part of, of child development. So we are hopefully geared toward, and our goal is to be balanced in that, to be able to pull from what is traditionally considered masculine and feminine and create a balance. In other words, mirroring the balance of God, because God is the perfect balance of all of those traits. And that's what we're trying to do. Now, the trouble is that we tend to make God so small in the way we think of him. You know, if you really think about it, we've sort of patterned our notion of God after ourselves even though we're created in his image, we kind of have recreated God in our image. And we've done that in several ways. First of all, we anthropomorphize him. The scripture does that. I mean, that's the way the ancient peoples understood their God. You know, God had physical traits. He had, he had eyes and ears and he even had wings. So that he was you know, compared to uh, animals as well. But also with the emotions, our human emotions, God is angry. God is sad. So we've anthropomorphized him and limited him in a way into what we can conceptualize as humanity. Secondly, we've also conceptualized him largely as father, as male. We just talked about that. And in doing that, if that's our main bent on how we see God, then we're losing half of his identity right off the bat. And so we've also limited God, made him smaller we projected the imperfections of our human father, our biological fathers, or of the male uh, father figures in our lives. So the way that they raised us becomes largely the way that we look at probably all authority figures, but also ultimately God. Was our father very overbearing? Was he impossible to please? Largely, that's the way we're going to look at God, too. And we would think, no, we we were able to transcend that, but it's so buried down deep in the unconscious, it's so buried down in those core beliefs that it's not that easy to eradicate those feelings, even if rationally we would say something else. Still, what's really driving the bus is down there in the unconscious where we're not even aware that it's affecting us. And then finally, we've imposed theological and doctrinal concepts on God. And those doctrinal or theological concepts either teach explicitly or at least imply an image of God that can be very hard to trust. I was just talking to someone yesterday and uh, we were talking about the fact that it is so hard and so difficult to get out from under the teachings that, uh, that we have endured, I suppose, as children. And, uh, and we were talking about the original sin and how original sin plays into sort of a logical extrapolation ultimately to the way that we look at God. Because if we are really born in original sin through no fault of our own, just through a DNA conveyance from Adam and Eve and and their disobedience, then we are born completely depraved. We are born completely outside of kinship and connection with God. And there's absolutely nothing that we can do about it. We can't fix that. We're just born that way. Yeah, <laughs> but you can't get baptized until there's a cross, right? And so now we got the crucifixion, which becomes the mechanical means by which we appease an angry God who will not accept us, and then we have to come under the covering of that blood. It's called the vicarious atonement. God, you know, Jesus, vicariously sacrifices himself in our place, and then we can come under that blood covering, and then we can be accepted again by God if we're covered by that blood. But here we are trying to appease an angry God. And that God, if not appeased, is going to throw us into eternal torment in hell. That's difficult to trust, right? And if that really is our bedrock belief of the way that this, uh, uh, let's say the mechanics of our relationship actually work that way, then even if we do talk about God's love, even if we do say that we're saved by grace and not by performance and not by work, so none of us can boast, and even if we emphasize sanctification, becoming more and more godlike, more and more sanctified, more and more set apart, holy in our lives, that still cannot bring us to the fearless vulnerability that kingdom represents, that ability to be completely fearlessly open and connected to really let people see us as we are because ultimately this father god doesn't really care about anything except the rules it's just about the rules i remember thinking when when uh, i was pushing through this myself 30 years ago that what you're telling me really is that god is a slave to his own justice there is nothing that God can do except damn us to eternal torment if we don't pass these certain litmus tests. And that just didn't compute with me. It didn't make any sense. And so no matter how much we said God loves us, Jesus loves us, there was still that underlying fear there. I had people coming up to me who had been in the church for 40 years and saying they still weren't sure that they were saved. And they were living with that kind of ambiguity hanging over their heads, that's a tragedy. That we can't know that our God accepts us, that we can't know that we're okay because we're here breathing. This is something that Jesus is really working at to try to get us to understand. That if we believe in any way that our God would ultimately abandon us if we don't pass certain tests, then we will always live in fear. We will never be free. And Jesus said, there is a truth that you can experience if you follow my ways that will make you free. Free to be fearlessly vulnerable. This is what we're talking about here. Now, yes, I know what you're probably thinking if you've done any Bible study at all. Yes, Paul and the evangelists do speak of Jesus as the perfect sacrifice. So what are we supposed to do with that? This is something that, in historical context, we need to understand what I think was going on. While the temple still stood, which is only another, what, 40 years after the crucifixion, but while that temple still stood, in those first couple of generations of of the Jesus movement, let's call it, because it wasn't a church yet, right? It was a movement, but it was a Jewish movement. It was a movement among Jews who had decided to follow Jesus. We just sung that song. It's still in my head, right? But it was a Jewish movement. When the temple falls in 70 AD, everything starts to change. Even though Paul is evangelizing to the Gentiles and some of the other apostles are doing so as well. And even though Paul had gone to the what he called the pillars of authority in Jerusalem and had this debate, it was still raging and it continued to rage throughout that whole first century period and if you read the the epistles especially but you'll see it in acts as well that fight between who are called typically Judaizers. These would be Jews that are following Jesus, but that believed that Gentiles, if they wanted to follow Jesus, follow Jesus first had to become Jews. If they were male, they had to be circumcised. They had to follow the dietary codes. They had to follow the purity codes. They had to follow kosher. They had to follow Torah in order to be acceptable to God. And Paul said, absolutely not. You know, go back and read Galatians. He's really fierce there. He's angry there. You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you, right? This is what he's talking about. And the fight that he's having, whether Gentiles need to become Jews, is bigger than just a Jewish-Gentile kind of fight that's going on because what the Jewish Judaizers, the followers of Jesus, are basically saying is that the law still reigns supreme, It's still all about the law. God cares only about the rules. If you have any infraction, and women, for for you, it could be your, your cycle, your menstrual cycle. That made you unclean. And then you had to go back and you had to present yourself to the priest and go through the purity codes and come back. But it could be anything that you did to break the law or to break any of these purity codes. And you always had to go back to the temple, have another sacrifice get declared clean so that you could come back into community. And what Paul is trying to tell them is that now there is this one and final perfect sacrifice that obviates having to go back to the temple over and over and over again every time there is an infraction. He's trying to show them that this relationship with God, this connection that we can have with God is greater than the law. We can still practice the law. It's a beautiful thing. It binds us together culturally. But it is not the standard by which God approves or disapproves his people. And understood that way, we understand exactly why he used the language he used. But I don't believe that it was meant to give us an insight into God's nature. Because that goes directly against what Jesus is saying all along. Read Matthew 5. Or he's redefining the law and he's saying it's not about just following the code. It's about the transformation of your heart that turns you into a living, walking, talking law. A living, walking, talking golden rule, if you will. Now all your choices are coming from the inside. Now your choices that look like law are just who you are. What you will do, what you take most pleasure in what you would never undo because it's who you have become. But we've taken that and we've so literalized it that we've created a new law. And this, I think, what Jesus is trying to get across, not a description of God's nature, but a metaphor to help the people release their death grip on the law, which changes God's whole entire nature. When it comes right down to it, what can we rationally know About God's nature. Rationally, not much. In fact, you could probably say rationally, nothing with any kind of certainty. Because how could God's nature be put into finite terms, finite language? How can something that is transcendent be made small enough to fit back into the rules of physics and the rules of our logic and and rationale? It's not a rational knowledge that we're going after here. But on the other hand, we can become convinced. Jesus was convinced of certain things about his father, and that's what he was teaching us. The apostles were certainly convinced. You would say you're all convinced. How do we become convinced of something that we can't know rationally about our God? Well, first there's something called general revelation. And I don't know if you've ever heard of that before. But general revelation is what we can know about God from just observing nature, observing the creation, observing the universe. And once we do that, then we start to realize when we look at nature, when we look at the universe, especially the James Webb Telescope. I don't know if you're following that, but that just fascinates me. All the new stuff that they're pulling out, you know, of, of, the, of the cosmos, the further and further that they can see. But what we're seeing is a creation of absolute order, of harmony, of mystery, right? Of beauty and abundance and of balance, And we see all those things out there the way these galaxies and, and these solar systems spin and move and the absolute exact tolerances. I mean, if anything moved slightly off the tolerances of our planet rotating and revolving around the sun, we'd all be toast in instant, right? But everything just stays where it is. That's incredible when you think about it. For billions of years unless you're a young Earth creationist, then for 6,000 years, okay. That doesn't matter. What matters is look around you and see what you see. See the Fibonacci code being played out in in plants and in and, and all these, these crystalline structures. It's absolutely astounding when you look at the order and the harmony, the beauty, the balance, and then the mystery and the abundance of it. That tells us, who our God is to a general extent he loves those things he is those things she is those things as well but then there's something called special revelation because that doesn't get us far enough. You know, it's like Einstein's question, you know, he wanted to know whether the universe was a friendly place, right? It's ordered, it's harmonious, it's beautiful, but is it friendly? In other words, is there something out there that actually knows me and cares about me and has my best interests at heart? That's what we really want to know, you know? Be as ordered as you want to be, but hey, where's my place in all this? That's what I really want to know. Special revelation kicks in then. Special revelation comes from what we can experience directly ourselves in our prayer lives. In our relational lives. You know, what is it that happens when Brandon holds that infant for the first time and is falling in love with her? What's that all about? What does that start to convince you of in terms of who this God is and how this God cares about each and every one of us? It also has to do with the experiences of others and the way that they can then. Teach us, mentor us, model for us. So now we're getting into scripture, the experience of others over thousands of years, over millennia, that we can read the tradition that comes out of those written words. And also the wisdom teachers that are still among us. Every generation has their wisdom teachers. Francis of Assisi is one of the greatest wisdom teachers for me personally. What he knew about God that flew in the face of what the Catholic Church was teaching at the time. His ability to try to speak truth to power, to go to the Pope and speak to the Pope, to go to Jerusalem and try to bring the Muslims and the Christians together, the things that he did, this little tiny Italian guy, to start an order that is continuing to this day, which does not exactly play by the same rules that Francis did because any institution changes, but he was a wisdom teacher. He got it somehow, through special revelations, through the visions he had that were a result of the illness that he had, being a prisoner of war, all of these things catapulted him into a special revelation. All the mystics are this way. They have something special that they have learned about God that takes us beyond nature all the way to a personal conviction. And that personal conviction helps us to make meaning, to make sense out of life in general and our lives in in specific. General revelation, special revelation takes us down the road to start to become convinced of who this God is. And this is what Jesus is trying to do as our greatest wisdom teacher, is to give us his revelation. When Jesus comes out of the wilderness... He has purged, he has burned off all the self-imposed and traditionally imposed limitations on God that he was handed as a child growing up. In that wilderness experience where he overcomes those three symbolic temptations that basically are supposed to symbolize all of the human drives that we need to overcome, the need for relevance, the need for power, the need to be spectacular, right? Security and and survival, esteem and affection, power and control, all those basic drives by which we believe are going to be our salvation in terms of getting us what we need in life have to be purged out, or they continue down in the subconscious to color our choices, our thought patterns, our behavior patterns, as we were just talking about. Jesus comes out of the wilderness like Moses comes down off the mountain with his hair whitened, with the tablets but a changed man. Someone that his hometown folk that he grew up with are just astounded. Isn't this the carpenter's son? What the heck's going on here? What happened? He is a changed person. He had a direct encounter with God. He had a time of intimacy with his father that helped him to finally realize who he was. That he was one with the Father. He saw how his own life, the experiences that he had, the hurts and traumas that he had growing up, and the religious traditions had limited and had skewed both his and his people's view of their God. And I know how this probably sounds. You know, Jesus was limited. How could Jesus be limited? He's Jesus. But the scriptures help us there. They tell us. He grew in wisdom and stature. If he had to grow, then he was more limited at one point. That doesn't mean that he's bad. He was just didn't have as much information as he had later. He didn't have as much experience as he had later. The wilderness experience was about him breaking through all of those human limitations because scripture also tells us Jesus was human in every way that we are. Sometimes we forget that. This process that Jesus went through is a process that everyone here, all of us have to go through. He said so, you know, you need to do what I'm doing. And then you can do the things that I'm doing and greater things than these. So I hope it doesn't sound irreverent, but this to me is the reality. Jesus in that experience, and it wasn't just 40 days, I guarantee you broke through all of those limitations into a realization of his identity that he was one with the Father. And then he spent the rest of his life, he gave the rest of his life, trying to free his people, any people, anyone who was in front of him at the moment, as he had been freed, to try to get all the distractions, all of the roadblocks out of the way. And so looked at that way, His crucifixion, His death, His willingness to accept that death is not a mechanical expression of the appeasement of an angry God, but it's showing us the lengths to which perfect love will go to free all of us, that there are no bounds. Jesus shows us what God looks like, even under duress, I suppose, in the most horrible of conditions, to remain vulnerable, not to become bitter, not to become vengeful, to simply look at the people who are hurting him and mocking him and debasing him and say, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. That picture of perfect love on that cross is showing us who our God is that God will hold nothing back in our favor. Out of the wilderness, Jesus is painting a very different picture of God. We limit God ourselves. We have a scarcity mentality, if you think about it, right? We look at life as a zero-sum game. If I'm going to get this, it's going to come out of somebody else's hide. Everything has to balance. There's never enough I'm going to have to compete. I'm going to have to fight and scratch and scratch in order to get the things that I need in life. It's all about supply and demand. That's the way we view life because that's the way life presents. And so we have this built-in picture of life and picture of God that we must perform and compete to get our share and also our share of God's approval. It's not just what happens here on earth, but it also, it's what happens in heaven We're gonna have to fight just as hard to get that. And it keeps us in a fearful stance, it keeps us defensive and it keeps us damned up. We can't let things flow because we gotta hold on to stuff because there may not be any tomorrow. We gotta hoard, we gotta hold on. We gotta be misers, prudent misers and we make a virtue out of it. But we're holding up our resources, we're not letting the spirit flow through us let's take a look at a couple of passages and see how jesus is trying to show us this very different god and we're going to start at john 10, 10. and this is the famous chapter of john where jesus is talking about the good shepherd he says in aramaic ena, ena, raya which literally means i i shepherd good i am the good shepherd He says, my sheep know me, they know my voice, and I know them. Anyone who climbs over the wall is a thief and a robber, but he who comes in through the door of the sheepfold is the one who's going to find pasture and to be able to come back into safety at night. And I am that door. I'm the good shepherd, and I'm the door. And everyone is going to go only by me and through me. And when we read things like that, we tend to limit them theologically again, don't we? Well, Jesus is the only way to the Father. Well, then I'm thinking theologically, then I've got to believe in the right Jesus. I've got to get my theology right, and I've got to do all the things that I need to do so that I am going through Jesus to the Father. But Jesus is talking experientially here. I am the door, I am this way, I am the portal between worlds, see how I have navigated, see what it is I do, see how I connect with my Father, do this and you will know the truth and the truth will make you free as well. And he says at John 10.10, I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. It's not just about a little bit, just enough. It's not about loving God and then holding on by your fingernails and gritting your teeth all the way through. There is an abundance to this. There's an openness to this. There's the ability to let things flow through us, to be able to lavish on others because we know that the source will never be turned off. We can't exhaust God. That's the abundant life that just opens us up to a freedom that we don't typically live. At Luke 5, starting at verse 1 through 17, this is a story of Jesus meeting Simon for the first time, Shimon in uh, Hebrew, Simon Peter. And they're meeting on the the shore of uh, the Sea of Galilee, the Lake of Galilee. And Peter's pretty dejected. We don't know it yet, but he hasn't caught any fish and he's been out all night. That's humiliating for the fisherman to come home with not a single fish, nothing to put on the table of his, at his home, nothing to sell to get the other goods that you need. And so he's pretty dejected. And Jesus comes, and he's got this whole crowd following him, and they're pressing in so much, he impresses Peter to let him get on the boat. And so he gets on the boat, and they push out, you know, a few feet from the shore. And Jesus preaches from the boat to all these people who are gathered at the water's edge. And then after he's done, at verse 4, He tells Peter and his brothers and his friends, put out into deep water and let down your nets for a catch. And Simon answered and said, Master, we worked hard all night and caught nothing, but I will do as you say and let down the nets. And when they had done this, they enclosed a great quantity of fish and their nets began to break. So they signaled to their partners in the other boat for them to come and help them. And they came and filled both of the boats So that they began to sink. And there's another story in John 21, the post-resurrection story, where the exact same thing happens, except Jesus says, put out the nets on the other side of the boat, which is even more insulting rationally, right? But that's the point. It's insulting rationally. It's not about rationale. But notice the beautiful detail here, put out into deep water. Because what we all do and what these fishermen were doing in their religious life, in their personal lives was skittering across the surface. They were staying in the shallows. Put out into the deep water. Get down underneath that and you're going to find an abundance that you have never known before. But you've got to get off the surface. You've got to go where you've never gone before. You're going to have to get your feet wet. You're going to have to go up to your eyeballs, and that's scary to do, but are you willing to go out and put out into the deep water? At Matthew 14, starting at verse 14, this is a a little snippet that we're going to read, and this is right after his cousin, John the Baptist, is executed in prison. And Jesus is hurting from that. He's grieving the death of his cousin. And so he goes out into the wilderness, as he always does, retreats into a lonely place to just pray and to try to find some solace, to try to make some sense out of what is just happening and to accommodate the loss that he's going through. And so he goes out into this place, but guess what? All the people follow him. (laughs) He can't get away from them, you know. And so they're there. He's not going to turn them down. And even though this was supposed to be his quiet time, his healing time, he heals all of them. And then when nightfall comes, they can't get back that quickly. There's no supplies. There's no food. So at verse 19, ordering the people to sit down on the grass, he took the five loaves and the two fish, all that they could scrape together. And looking up toward heaven, he blessed the food. And breaking the loaves, he gave them to the disciples. And the disciples gave them to the crowds. And they all ate and were satisfied. And they picked up what was left over of the broken pieces, 12 full baskets. There were about 5,000 men who ate besides women and children. And this story is repeated in Matthew 32. Abundance, coming from nowhere, makes no rational sense but a people who had followed Jesus into the lonely place who were there with him, who were open enough for the healings that were taking place and this abundance shows up for them. Matthew 13, starting at verse 1. This is the parable of the sower and the seeds, right? And so he talks about a sower who's throwing his seeds out and in the rocky terrain and the hilly terrain of of the Galilee, you know, it sounds like why wasn't he tilling the soil into neat little rows and putting them where they're all going to be good? Well, how are you going to do that when there's rocks everywhere? So the easiest thing for them to do was to just scatter the seeds. And of course, they're going to fall in all these different places and only some of it's going to grow, but that was still more efficient than trying to in any way remove the rocks or prepare the soil. And so Jesus is speaking from something that he's been watching since he was a little boy. He watches this process. He watches what happens to those seeds, that they fall in these various four soils that he is going to describe. And he knows that everyone who is listening to him has had the same experience. They understand it as well. These are images that are burned into them. And then at verse 8, he said, Others' seeds fell on the good soil and yielded a crop, some a hundredfold, some 60, and some 30. And at verse 12, For whoever has, to him more will be given, and he will have an abundance. Again, this theme of abundance. If only we are the good soil that we're not full of rocks ourselves with soil so thin that it springs up and then is withered by the sun, not so compacted and set in our own ways like the footpath that the seeds just bounce off and the birds come and eat them and not so filled with worldly cares that like the the seed that fell within the the thorns and the weeds were choked out. Are we just receptive enough? There's going to be an abundance that we can't even imagine. And then finally, Matthew 5, verse 44. This is about loving the enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. Once again, sun and rain. Is there anything less efficient than the sun? I mean, in terms of the way it just pours energy out three hundred and sixty degrees from the sphere in every way, and then how much of it catches just the lit side of our little dot of a planet ninety three million miles away? Holy I mean you say, can't you focus that a little bit more or do something better? You know? Can't we capture a little bit more? How are we even gonna capture it? You know? Most of the surface of the planet's water anyway. You can't capture that. We put our little feeble wind farms up in we, you know, in our, our solar panels. And he's saying this absolute incredible abundance of which we get this tiny little bit falls on everybody equally, the righteous and the unrighteous. The rain falls as it does in the same manner on the righteous and the God doesn't discriminate. He just is, like the sun, pouring out this abundance, this extravagance all the time in every direction. Nothing you can do about it. Nothing you can do to attenuate it. Nothing you can do to divert it, to focus it, or do anything with it. It just is. This is what Jesus is trying to get across to us. It's a picture of absolute extravagance, abundance, this wild outpouring, this absolute Wasteful expenditure, if you want to. And now we're, if you're not thinking already, how about the prodigal son? Which really should be called the prodigal father. Because prodigal doesn't mean someone who returns like we normally think of it. Prodigal means someone who is wastefully spend, spendful, a spendthrift, extravagant, just pouring things everywhere. That's what prodigal means. It's not the son, well, I suppose the son is prodigal as well, but the father? Give me my inheritance now when I don't even deserve it? a question that would be deserving of being stoned to death, and he pours out his wealth to the Son. And when he blows it all and comes back, now he's going to pour out his wealth into a party. Absolute extravagance over and over and over again. That is probably the quintessential story of Jesus to show the extravagance of the Father, the abundance of the Father. No scarcity. Certainly no zero-sum, You can take as much as you want from God's abundance and it's not going to make a dent. It's like capturing a little bit of sunlight. It's not going to make any difference to the sun. Now, the elder brother has a problem with all of this because he's still living in the scarcity mentality. He's still living that the brother is getting something that he's not getting and so he's being diminished and then the father says, everything I have is already yours. Diminishing your brother's portion isn't going to take anything away from you. You all have everything that there is to have. What part of everything don't you understand? That's it. No scarcity. Both have everything. And to drive this point home further, Jesus is trying to use, Jesus doesn't trying to use, he is using different names for God that help get us to understand, or at least to get his hearers to understand. Harder for us, because we don't speak the language. But Av, A-B, Aleph Bet, that referred to God, yes, as the strong house, as the strong tribal leader. As a leader of a clan, fierce, warlike even. That was that was father of. But Jesus comes back from the desert calling him Abba. That's actually a feminine ending that is attached to Av. Abba is what the children use to talk about their f- fathers. It's it's a sign of intimacy, an intimate experience and connection. It's a sign of of love and affection, you know. It's been said that it's equivalent to daddy. If you look that up, you're going to find people really taking issue with that. But whatever it really means, what it does mean, to this day, Hebrew children call their daddies Abba and their mothers Ima. It means affection. It means intimacy. It means familiarity. From that fierce tribal leader to someone into whose lap you can call. And then if you look at the first line of the Lord's Prayer... Matthew 6, starting at verse 9, Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That translates in Aramaic as shmaya, shmach, melchuta, akana That first line, that first word there, avun. Notice the first two letters. It's still Ab. It's still father. But now we have two other letters added, the W and the N. The the, um, the vav and the nun. And what those add is, the vav, the W in our language, has to do with a tent peg, has to do with securing down the house, securing down the tent. The nun is a germinating seed or the idea of continuing life. And so when you add those two together, what you're adding is a house that continues Basically, by adding the vav and the nun to the aleph and the bet, avun, it gives us the sense of a non-gender specific cosmic parent, the creator of everything, a first cause. So when you talk about Ab, you're talking about a father in the macro sense, the leader of a group. When you go to Abba, it's now gone into a micro context. It's a one-on-one relationship that has intimacy and affection. And when you go to Avun, now you're talking in a cosmic context. Jesus uses those three words to be able to understand the different roles and the relationship that he has with father. And how does he describe that? He describes that with the Vashmaya. Now, Semitic languages like Aramaic, Hebrew, Arabic, they don't have the little words, conjunctions, and prepositions. You just keep adding prefixes and suffixes on to get the meaning that you need to the stem word, which is called the lexeme. And so you have here both a D and a B at the beginning of Shemaya, which is heaven. And the D stands for that which from of, and the, and the bet in, with, or regard to. And so those are tacked on to the beginning of, of heaven. We translate as just who art in heaven. But really what's happening here with these prefixes is not that God is separate from, from but happens to be located in heaven. It means that God is one with and identical with heaven and what heaven means essentially. And so it's a different kind of understanding. And what is heaven? Shemaya, Again, the, the lexeme, the, the the root word is Shem, which means name. But it can also mean sound or vibration. It can also mean essence or character. And when you add AYA onto the end of that, it's extending it without limit. Just like Banaya is Ben, which is sun, and AYA means generation. So the same thing is happening. This is the essence or the character that is extending without limit. So that Shemaiah means the heavens, it means the skies, it means the stars and the cosmos all at once. And the idea of the name in Hebrew is not just an appellation, just a word that we give to attach to somebody. It was understood as the the, the, the surface or the face of something that revealed the inner essence, the inner character. So if Shemaiah is the face that reveals the inner essence of God, then what is that? What is the heavens revealing to us about who this Father God really is? Something that astronomers have been figuring out, and James Webb is opening up for us more and more, is that this universe is insanely extravagant. It's abundance beyond belief. It's an overwhelming overkill. There could be as many as 100 to 700 billion stars just in our Milky Way galaxy. 100 to 700 billion stars. There could be 170 billion to 2 trillion galaxies in the observable universe. That's just what we can see. And most of these stars out there, right? Maybe 700 billion stars in 2 trillion galaxies and most of those stars have planets, and just take our one Earth, there are possibly 8.7 million to one trillion species living on this little planet that we live on. And each one of those species has billions or trillions of individual life forms per species. And these are just numbers that I'm throwing out to you. To try to bring that home to you, if you tried to count to a million just one number a second. One. One hippopotamus? Two hippopotamus? Three. How long would it take you to get to a million? Any guesses? Forever. <laughs> uh, nah? Pretty close. Twelve days. Alright, it would take you twelve days to count to a million, one hippopotamus, two. How long would it take you to count to a billion? 32 years how would it take how long would it take you to count to a trillion 32000 years even John can't do that see we don't understand the logarithmic and exponential effect of these numbers 12 days to count to a million 32 years to count to a billion 32000 years to count to a trillion and we're talking about heavenly bodies in the trillions and the trillions times trillions? You're starting to get the picture of what this universe is saying about our God. God is extravagance personified, an overflowing abundance. For God, if one is good, then a trillion is better. It just sort of works out that way. He just throws everything at the wall to see what'll stick. In God, we don't receive at another's expense. Everybody is paid the same. Another one of Jesus' great stories, no matter what time you came to work, you got paid the same. And the ones who came early were incensed like the elder brother, but hey, you're all getting everything. So what are you complaining about? And there's always more where that came from. What part of everything don't you understand? But we weren't trained or taught this way. And in closed systems, right, Either your household, your budget, or even a a, a region or a country or a planet. In closed systems, it doesn't look that way. Because in closed systems, yes. You clean up this area, this gets dirtier. You take from this area and you put over here then this. So yes, we see that zero-sum game in play in closed systems. But God is not a closed system. God is an open system. And Jesus is trying to get across the spiritual difference here despite the physical realities that we experience and despite the human experience and mindset that we have. I mean, let me ask you a question. Did you really think it was fair for the thief on the cross to get a get-out-of-jail-free card at the last minute to essentially jump the line right before he dies and get to go to heaven that day and go to paradise? Does that really seem fair to you? When you had to do all the work that you had to do in order to get wherever you think that you are at this point, just to be forgiven at the end, well, it's not fair, not from a legal standpoint, not from a scarcity or zero-sum game point of view, but what if there is another point of view? How many of you have seen the movie Dune? Yeah? Anybody like it? Oh, good. Yeah. (laughs) Oh no, no! The, the recent one. The first ones you don't want to see. Those, those are not good. You know, when, when, uh, when I was a kid, I think I read the whole Dune series three or four times. I was just so enamored with it. But the story of Dune is that it takes place on a desert planet. The entire planet. Is nothing but sand dunes and desert and mountains and rocks. There is no water. There is no precipitation. There's water locked down deep in the planet, but you can't get to it. And so you're catching every little bit of dew that happens. And every, you know, you, you, your whole life, culture, religion, society is based on scarcity and the scarcity of water and how that affects everything and anything that you do. And in the course of the story, these peoples who come from a planet much like ours are injected into that society. And at one point, one of these these off-worlders just makes a comment, where I was born, water falls from the sky. It collects into wide rivers and empties into vast oceans. And you hear this audible gasp from the people who are listening, you know, oh, a sigh, the awe. Water falls from the sky? How can this be? We live in a desert mentality. We live with that scarcity mentality, that competition, that rationing, that zero-sum. We live in that kind of fear. What if we stepped off a starship into a world where water falls from the sky? How would that change things where we could drink all we want, bathe in it, swim in it? How would that change our view of life and reality, religion and culture? What if you were poor all your life, counting every single penny all your life, always living with that kind of frugality and that need to be that thrifty? And then suddenly you win the lottery or you get an inheritance, or you get a new job that pays you what you never paid before. How does that change everything? What if you were lonely all your life, never had friends, always living that kind of isolation, and then suddenly you meet a life partner that immediately injects you into a new family, extended family, and you're surrounded by life and laughter and people at the table. How does that change everything that you think you know What we believe about our Father in heaven colors everything that we believe about life and how we view it. And Jesus is trying to tell us that our Father is an inexhaustible, abundant, extravagant love that falls from the sky, literally falls from the sky, equally on all of us, indiscriminately, degreelessly on all of us. Yeah, but aren't we supposed to fear God? anyone thinking that one but that's not what fear means in Psalm 139 David says something really interesting he says I am fearfully and wonderfully made that's why I praise you because I'm fearfully and wonderfully made that's the kind of fear we're talking about when we fear God and in Jewish poetry you repeat the same concept so fearfully and wonderfully is basically saying the same thing think of what he's doing he's probably looking at his hands looking at the way they move, looking what he can do with them, thinking of all the different skills that he possesses to be able to, to play his lute or his lyre or whatever it is he played and sing and, and write music and then kill and, and go to war and, and love and babies are born, all this amazing stuff that he's seen all his life. And he's just blown away by the intricacy and the design And the relationship, that's the kind of fearful attitude we have for God. It's an awe and a wonder and a realization of our relationship with him. That we are the created, we are the creatures, but we are loved to such a degree that it doesn't matter. We're children at his table. His love literally falls from the sky. It is always there for us. We're swimming in it right now and we can't diminish it. No matter how many get it, it's still there for you and for each of us. God has an infinite number of best friends. You don't have to worry about that. And one more thing, it doesn't matter how long you've realized this, only that at some point you do. Because even though it's a reality, it won't make a bit of difference to your life and how you live it and the attitude with which you live it or the amount of fear and anxiety and and depression in your life until you finally get it. That you can't outrun this. You can't lose this. And whenever you do figure it out, you just show up and you can receive. You can't earn it. The admission is free. And every seat is front row center. So do you ever care when others arrive if you're already sitting front row center? It only matters that they do because then we can have a shared experience. All of that need to hoard flows out of us because we know that we can't exhaust the source. And as long as we're connected to the source, we're just a conduit. We're just a garden hose. It's just pouring through us. This is the Father that Jesus wants us to know. And this Father's Day, let's see if we can start to turn toward that overflowing, extravagant, inexhaustible, and even playful Father God. That all we have to do is show up with the willingness to drop our nets. Still got to do that. So, everything that we think we know of our scarcity mentality, of our fear based, competitive mentality, and approach the moment with beginner's mind, as Jesus would say, as a child, accepting what we see on its face value, to begin to see with Jesus' eyes, with the Father's eyes, that in our God, His nature, there's absolutely nothing to fear. Let's pray. Father, it's just, you're too good to be true. It's so hard for us to believe that you could be who your son says you are. But we're gonna take it at least enough on faith that we can take the few first steps in the direction of your abundance, in the direction of your extravagance and your degreeless love and see if it continues to be true with each small step that we can afford to take until we can afford to take more and larger steps, until we're just running headlong into your embrace. But help us with those first few, Lord, because they're difficult. And even if we think that we have already got our minds and hearts wrapped around this, and then it gets fearful, and we want to pull back, remind us then, that's just the nature of it, our nature, but then to push further forward to come to you again and to realize that we can't exhaust you, Lord. That's what we're looking for. And this Father's Day, where we're bringing all of our fathers to mind, help us to just bring you to mind in this place that Jesus would have us place you so that it can change everything about the way we live and the way we parent and the way we are parented. Thank you, Lord, for everything that you do. Never let us forget we can only love because you loved us first. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Let's all stand.